Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties 2. I'm Tracy Hotchner. I love dogs and cats and the people who care about them. Every week I talk with authors and experts to expand our understanding and appreciation of these pets who share our lives. To hear earlier episodes of this show and download podcasts of other informative pet talk radio shows that I co-host with top veterinarians and experts, please go to RadioPetLady.com. If you want to stay in the know when it comes to doing what's best for your pets, follow me on Facebook and Twitter. You'll find me at Tracy Hotchner. That's Tracy with an I-E. Have a pet-related question or comment? Post it on my page or tweet me. Dog Talk is a production of Pet Media Inc., which is solely responsible for its content. I also produce the philanthropic Dog Film Festival, sponsored by the Petco Foundation, which I take around the country celebrating the love between dogs and their people while benefiting the animal welfare groups that bring them together. More information is at dogfilmfestival.com. This show is brought to you with the generous support of Waruva, a family-owned pet food company whose owners want to feed their own pets and yours with ingredients that are good enough for people to eat, using the same care, ingredients, and facilities where they make food for people. Named after their rescued kitties, W.E. for Webster, R.U. for Rudy, and V.A. for Vanessa, Waruva's owner, David Foreman, is passionate about good nutrition. Their new Caloric Harmony Dry Food for Dogs is formulated on the principle of how the body actually metabolizes food and the importance of high-quality protein in the diet. Not all calories are created equal. Our pets' bodies and ours digest Twinkies and chicken breasts quite differently. Look for Waruva wherever fine natural pet foods are sold. I have three really interesting people joining me today. Steve Lawrence is here. He's going to talk about a great documentary that he and his team are in the middle of finishing called The Cat Rescuers about Brooklyn, hoping to have it in the Cat Film Festival in 2019. Oh, thinking ahead. Or 2018. Sorry, never mind. (laughs) Mary Emma Young will be back from the Pet Food Institute talking about how the FDA works with manufacturers and the Pet Food Institute to avoid and deal with pet food problems. And Lucinda Williams will be here from the service dog Warren Retrievers that has diabetic alert dogs. I know a lot of people are looking for those, unfortunately, and now we're going to find out where to find them. So, Steve Lawrence, congratulations on the journey you've already, how far you've already come on your journey to make this marvelous documentary. Thank you, Tracy. And yes, we've been, at, we've been at it for over three years. And, and I guess, you know, that's one of the things I'd love to talk about besides the, the general focus of the film, which is so New York centric, which makes it perfect for the, the brand new New York Cat Film Festival. But, but also the process of making a documentary and the amount of time, energy, money, devotion. It's really an, almost has to be an obsession, doesn't it, for people to this happen? Well, um, I'm not sure obsession is the right word. But but it is a big commitment. And well, you know, once I, I'm an obsession in a good way. I mean, an obsession yes. is that I'm going to do this no matter <laughs> what the obstacles. Obsession, not like a mental illness, but like, you know, <laughs> like those great movies they made of, what was the one about the guy that carried the boat over the mountain and, you know, that famous movie in which the movie maker was as obsessed? Yes, sure. It's the, called Burden of Dreams. And it's oh, and about the Werner yeah. Herzog making a film called Fitzcarraldo. Yeah. Well done, exactly. So I sort of think of you as the Fitzcarraldo of the of the cat <laughs> world because where you know people don't understand the money involved in making a documentary. And I know you had a successful Kickstarter 
program that, that I think that some of the listeners to these shows may have helped with. But you think, well, what's the big deal? You go out there with a the camera, you take, you know, right. you shoot footage. It, it ain't like that. Talk about how you became a documentarian and, and why cats, why feral cats. Well, I became a documentary filmmaker because I'm fascinated with telling the stories of people and exploring um, social situations, some have been human rights. Um, I've also made a lot of cultural documentaries. And uh, the, the, the process of, of documenting a story or a life is always immersive and very time-consuming. Some films take longer than others. And the cat rescuers has been on the longer end. And, is it uh, is it because you have the four main protagonists? You're not following just one person in their attempt to help the the one million, as you point out in the trailer to the film, the one million cats on the streets of New York. But you're following four of them with their own story arcs and life path. Yes, that that is one of the reasons it's taken so long. Um, we, we started with everyone in 2014, and of course we, we had to find these four cat rescuers first and develop relationships with them. And um, over time, uh, their, their rescue work has changed and their lives have changed also. And in any documentary, you, you want to be able to show change. You enter the story at a certain point and you leave it at a certain point. And uh, over these three years and a little bit more, there have been significant changes for each of the, the subjects in our film. And so, uh, those, those changes have to do with the intensity of the work that they're doing, the, the demands that the work uh, makes on their lives, and, and the sacrifices and how they, they cope with all of that. I'm, I'm really so, so really, really excited to, to look at you know, a final assembly, final footage, a final version of it, because I think that it's a, a really fantastic area for a true documentarian to go into. And and I say that a little bit snobbishly, only because one does see what I think of as cause movies. Somebody with some kind of money decides they're going to make a film against puppy mills like nobody else knows that puppy mills sure. are bad. And then they have people talking face front to the camera. Do you know how many dogs are killed and cats are killed in shelters a year and isn't this horrible and then they you know get some shocking footage and then they go around with placards a real documentary filmmaker is following life and letting life evolve and i'm wondering as someone who's done that on many topics and documentaries do tend to be about important social issues that are never addressed in really in any other way what is the luck factor for you do you sniff the luck factor in following a person or, a, or a, a story thread and having it pay off because you don't manipulate it. Unlike cause filmmaking, you don't manipulate anything. You have to let it unfold and hope you've got footage that later edits into a whole story, right? Right. Well, let me just drop back for a second. Uh, we wanted to make a film about this issue. Yes, the, of course. The, the problem with street cats in New York City and the, and the fact that it's grown and appears at times to be insurmountable so that the rescue community is up against a very great task here. Yes. But we, we didn't want to make 
a film that is just about the issue. We wanted the film to be character-driven. So yes, we're, exactly. we're, we're looking at that animal welfare, animal rights issue through the lens of four people who, who represent this larger rescue community. There's a large grassroots rescue community in, in New York City um, dealing with this issue. And um, you, you simply have to allow enough time to tell the stories of, of these individuals. And that is, it's, it's the struggle, but it's also the magic of documentary filmmaking. Yes. In, in a fictional work, you can take that, that arc of a particular character who starts somewhere and ends up somewhere else, and you can script it and, and you know, know exactly where you're going. And uh, the luck factor you mentioned, yes, it, it enters into all documentaries, um, but it all begins with the selection of your subjects. Um, Rob Frookman, my co-director, and I um, met a lot of different rescuers, and we picked the four people that we did um, because we felt that uh, they not only had the kind of commitment to the work they're doing, but um, were um, struggling in certain ways with what that commitment means in their lives. Yes, and, yeah, that's that's so, well said, and that's and that's and that that knows for what what will really have impact. I imagine comes from from your experience, from being a veteran documentarian, someone who who who's probably in your past gone down some blind alleys and thought something looked like it could be great, and you didn't understand that it was going to be a dead end. It would it would be a dud in some way. The person, sure, sure. right? I mean, I, yes. and so I'm always marvel at the brilliance of that choice, and that's what I'm really saying. Do you put out a? I'm teasing when I say this. A notice on Craigslist looking for interesting cat rescuers in the <laughs> in the five boroughs of New York. I mean, how do you even how do you even get the pie, the pool from which to pick? Well, first of all, we decided to focus on Brooklyn. Uh, I'm based in Brooklyn, and Rob's based in Manhattan. But the, the genesis of the film was my wife and, and me moving into a house in the Bay Ridge section of Brooklyn and discovering that there was a large colony of uh, feral cats um, coming to our back door looking to be fed. We had no idea they were there. And so we, we had to figure out how to deal with them, what we were going to do. And we learned about TNR and then through the different rescue people who, who taught us, um, we discovered how big the problem was. Um, uh, anyway, um, but what was the question again? <laughs> the question is, how do, no worries, it's happened to me too, and I'm always hoping somebody will rescue me, so I'm delighted <laughs> to do that for you. Um, you, have, you, you need a good pool of people to choose oh, from. Oh, yes, yeah. Right, right, so how right. do you... Uh, right. Without hurting anyone's feelings, you know, like I, I'm going to pick you, but not you. It's almost like casting a documentary in, in this situation. How do you get a big enough pool that you have a nice cross section of of humanity to get well, the cross section of cat rescuers? Okay, so we we wanted to uh, to base the film in Brooklyn because there's a big problem with street cats here. Um, it's a problem that isn't replicated in the same way in Manhattan, for example. Uh, in, in Brooklyn, however, you have uh, so many detached houses, you have 
many more backyards and and old warehouses, and so former former industrial spaces, right? Right, and a lot of industrial sites and 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 abandoned buildings and so forth. Um, so we decided to base it in Brooklyn, and then we wanted a, a diversity of subjects. We not only wanted women, but we wanted to find at least one man. And we wanted to focus on neighborhoods that are not necessarily familiar to people who, who think of Brooklyn as, uh, you, you know, as a hip cultural center. Um, we decided we were going to avoid, um, and, and no offense to these communities, right, right. Um, Park, Park Slope and Williamsburg and, and uh, Borham Hill and Brooklyn Heights and, and, and you know, communities that um, are, are generally uh, populated by uh, well-off people who have the, the capacity to deal with an issue like this um, if, if they need to. Anyway, so we were interested in other communities, and um, we just put out word. We worked initially with one rescue group that had helped us out, helped my wife and I out, called Brooklyn Animal Action, which is one of the best uh, grassroots rescue organizations in Brooklyn. And they introduced us to people who introduced us to other people. Nice. And eventually, eventually we found uh, Sassy, Tara, Claire, and Stu. And um, they came from uh, uh, some of the neighborhoods that are not so familiar, Canarsie, Borough Park, and Kensington, Bay Ridge, and Gerritsen Beach. Um, uh, however, Claire comes from Bed-Stuy, and, you know, Bed-Stuy is, is a very well-known neighborhood at this point. But I think some of the other neighborhoods will not be familiar to the average viewer who knows something about Brooklyn. So there's, there's a look at a whole other side of the city, and particularly that borough. Uh, I, I'm sure quite illuminating that the... the that it ain't it ain't yuppie, that's for sure. It it isn't all perked up yet at all. I'm wondering because some other people that are in the cat rescue movement, the the feral cat rescue movement, which is to say, often not to rescue them, but to maintain them as trapped, neutered, released colonies that are looked after. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. there, in some areas, there is a lot of antipathy towards people doing this work in in, in terms of like really big anger and and like neighborhood fury and rage that somebody is maintaining a healthy and happy cat colony. Is that the the case in Brooklyn that these people have to work under the cover of dark kind of thing that they're spit upon rather than celebrated or is it the opposite? I think it's a mixture. Um, You're, you're always going to have people who don't appreciate having community cats, um, having colonies that have been TNR'd because they, they don't want uh, their kids or their families, their backyards, uh, to be uh, populated by cats that are just hanging out and living their lives. But um, generally, the, the rescuers uh, get called into situations where people want to have a cat rescued. Um, right. You know, they, they probably don't know anything about TNR, and uh, when they learn about TNR, yes, that's a, a decision they have to make. Is that cat going to come back, or more than one cat going to come back to your property or to your neighborhood, and are you going to take care of it? Um, that's, a, that's a significant commitment. 
my my wife and I have TNR 36 cats wow. on our block. And as a result, there have been no new kittens in three years. And and so when and, people, and no new rats either. <laughs> right, right, yes. And of course the cats the cats police the, the rodent community, which is really important. But then you have people who love birds and they're concerned that the cats will kill the birds, although um, we haven't seen evidence of of a well fed, uh, secure colony. Um, you know, attacking birds, and generally birds know to stay out of the range of cats. Exactly. I mean, they can get, can get well above the climbing range of, of your average street cat. But um, uh, look, we've, we've heard some horror stories. We have seen and documented some horror stories where people just uh, treat uh, cats like vermin. Uh, uh, cats, we know, have been poisoned by landlords, um, there's one case where Tara Green, one of the rescuers in the film, uh, found a cat that, uh, named Whitney, well, she named it Whitney, that had an arrow shot at it. There was an arrow embedded in her face. Wow. And Tara had to, had to take her to an emergency uh, vet clinic, get the arrow removed, nursed her back to health. Um, she's a, a terrific cat. Uh, of course, has been traumatized, but she's working on getting her adopted out, and I'm sure she'll succeed. But um, so, look, I, I, I would say that based on our experience, there are more people who who want uh, to have cats TNR, particularly once they understand what TNR does, that it's it's a humane method of population control than people who want to get rid of the cats, who just want to see them dumped someplace else or euthanized. Um, but this is an educational process, and that's exactly. one of the goals of the film. Mm-hmm. I mean, the film, um, through the experiences of these rescuers and the journey that they've taken, um, will, will help educate viewers about why this is important, but, uh, but even more importantly, why it works. That, that it is a solution. You don't have to euthanize tens of thousands of cats. There is a way to deal with this. Um, and uh, grassroots groups and individuals can take responsibility for it. Um, but ideally, we'd like to see municipalities step up as well. And that is, um, you know, that's something that will probably enter into the film at the end because there's an initiative uh, taken by the Brooklyn Borough President, Eric Adams, to bring the rescue community together to have a discussion about what the borough and and the mayor's office, possibly, uh, can do to help support the work that the rescue groups are doing. So we're Uh, we're hoping to document that and and, uh, make that part of the film as well. And I think that'll be the true happy ending, because in all cases of animal welfare, whether it's cart horses in New York City from the 1800s to today, or dogs that used to be treated as vermin all over the world and still are in many places, and kitties as well, as we evolve and as we educate and and sort of compassionize each other, we do better and better by each species. And kitties are still low on the totem pole, and I really... Salute you and your wife for giving those 37 cats a safe and happy, harmonious place to live, but also in helping everybody else to understand what the issues are and how in improving life for cats, we can improve our lives as well. 
So Steve Lawrence, I can't wait for the cat rescuers to be part of the New York Cat Film Festival. Not this first year in 2017, but next year in 2018. And I expect you and all your rescuers to come as my guests to the film festival this year. So keep up the good work. And we look we all look forward to seeing the movie in a year's time. Okay. Well, we would we would love to be there to share the film with you and and uh, your viewers. And I should point out that information about the film is available on our website, catrescuersfilm.com. Perfect. I will have the link uh, to it with the podcast. Okay, great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much, We'll talk again soon. Take care. Bye-bye. I'll be right back after this quick word with Mary Emma Young from the Pet Food Institute. This show is brought to you by Halo Holistic Natural Dog and Cat Foods, which are made only with whole meats, never any rendered meat meals like chicken meal or byproduct meal. Dogs love meat and cats are obligate carnivores, so optimum nutrition starts with meat that their bodies can best utilize. With responsibly sourced ingredients slow-cooked in small batches, independent tests have shown Halo foods are highly digestible so your pet's bodies can absorb the nutrients. When you feed your pet Halo food, at the same time you'll be nourishing less fortunate shelter pets because for every purchase you make, Halo gives a bowl of food to shelters. I am back with Mary Emma Young, who's the spokesperson for the Pet Food Institute in Washington, D.C., and represents 98% of the pet food manufacturers in the United States, their interests, their concerns, their challenges, their issues. So I've invited Mary Emma here to talk about how the FDA works with pet food manufacturers to avoid and also deal with problems, and one in particular that, that came across my desk. So Mary Emma, welcome to Dog Talk. Hi, Tracy. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to talk again. Those of you who might have heard my conversation with Mariama on pet food advisors, we talked about what happens when there's a canned pet food that appears to create be creating health problems, in this case in cats, and how does the Pet Food Institute get involved in that? So now I realize there's a whole part of how the industry works that would be really helpful to all of us who sometimes there's a kind of chip on the shoulder for pet food owners towards pet food manufacturers. Talk about the FDA, which is, I thought, Food and Drug Administration has to do with human food, right? How do they work at times with pet food manufacturers either to avoid problems or to address them? So FDA is the federal regulatory body for pet food. So it does fall um, under the Center for Veterinary Medicine, which is a part of the FDA. And one of the big components for FDA plays a role is with the enforcement of the Food Safety Modernization Act, or FSMA, as we call it. FSMA is the uh, major food safety law uh, that was recently signed into effect about five, six years ago. And pet food falls under that. And so uh, FDA has been the regulatory body on enforcement for FSMA. And that starts with creating the direct rule and what that language and regulation is going to look like. Uh, PFI and our members were involved in commenting on that draft rule to ensure that it's applicable for pet food makers. And now FDA has the authority to inspect pet food facilities under FSMA as well and ensure compliance with this big food safety law. So that's one of the big areas where FDA does play a role with pet food. Okay, so did that come about, this drafting of these rules in this law, uh, in response to that big pet food recall? Because it was more than five or six years ago, or did it have something to do with the human food supply chain? 
We saw a lot of food safety concerns going on a number of years ago. Uh, in addition to uh, pet food incidents we referenced, there were other food safety concerns for human food as well. And so FSMA impacts human food and pet food alike, which I think some people don't necessarily realize. Um, I did, so, actually. Yep. And they both now fall under FSMA. And that's been obviously a major, major role for the pet food industry. And in fact, when FDA came out with the draft regulation, the first draft regulation, uh, PFI and our members put in about 3,000 hours in compiling comments and reviewing and getting feedback back to FDA so that they could really put together the best law for the industry that could be applicable to pet food makers. It'd be something that they could live with that would make sense, that would both protect the consumer, whether they're two-legged or four-legged, but I imagine also makes sense in how they source material and how they process it. Maybe the FDA didn't realize that, or maybe a potato chip manufacturer has many of the same concerns that a pet food manufacturer does in terms of equipment and cleanliness and, I don't know, the supply chain and handling issues. I mean, are they quite similar in a way? Exactly. So you'll see some ways in which it's very similar, particularly as we talk about facility cleanliness and what we call current good manufacturing practices. So that's things like facility upkeep and design and cleanliness. So you do see some areas there. And again, just making sure that they understand the process for how pet food is made, the relationship with suppliers, and that it's applicable for those in the industry. So that should both, that should give, I would think, it might have, might have wound up costing pet food manufacturers more money, both in all the 3,000 hours spent commenting on this and wanting to have input and then perhaps changing some of their equipment or practices or habits or be ready for and aware of inspections uh, in a certain way that didn't exist before. But it, but it, I would think it, it should add a level of, of relief, if you will, or put your, put your doubts at rest to consumers about the seriousness with which pet food is taken. Spot on, and you hit a great point, which is that um, these companies have been spending a lot of money, I mean, millions of dollars in, uh, you know, further retrofitting their facilities, stuff such as that. Pet food facilities were already been going under good manufacturing practices prior to FSMA, but this was a chance to really formalize a lot of these practices. So you're seeing a lot of investment in the facilities, in training, to really raise the bar for the entire industry. So, and, and you as an organization with members who 98% of all the pet food that's made and treats, they're, they're a member of your organization, and you're based in Washington, D.C., does that mean that you lobby um, in on, on Capitol Hill? Is there some sort of a pet food lobby, like, oh, we want things to be done in a way that benefit our industry, as there is enormous amount of lobbying on behalf of human foods and ingredients? Yeah, you can see some lobbying on, on Capitol Hill. Actually, one of the big areas in terms of congressional activities that we're watching very closely right now is the budget for FDA uh, and what will be budgeted uh, for that regulatory agency. We are supportive of a fully funded FDA. That means they have the ability to go out there and inspect and to have staff and inspectors that are well-trained. So uh, you may recall the president released the proposed budget just a few weeks ago. So example, that's something we're gonna be watching really closely and advocating that the FDA is fully funded and able to implement their work under food safety laws. 
In fact, that was going to be my next question was uh, how many FDA inspectors are there? Because if you look at things like puppy mills and, and having uh, oversight on puppy mills, for example, and there's supposedly these inspectors from this department or that department or the ASPCA or, or sorry, the uh, the AKC, there's maybe six or 10 inspectors for the whole country. Does the FDA already have lots or not enough if you add pet food and human food to the equation? I would, I would need to pull the numbers on that in terms of the exact amount, because you're also going to be seeing some of these, uh, this regulatory responsibilities falling under the state level as well. So you'll also have state inspectors in addition to the FDA inspectors. So I'd, I'd have to pull that number. And, you know, what we want here is for these inspectors to have the training that they need so that there is, everybody knows what to expect when these inspections are going on and that the agency uh, and, and the regulated body, everybody's up to speed. That, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So thyroid hormones. So I get this article that there's thyroid hormones in pet food that come from the thymus gland of mm -hmm. animals that are used in pet food winding up in pet food. Well, I thought organ meats were a really good thing. And I, back in the day when I grew up in Europe and lived there, um, a lot. Uh, thymus gland is, I think, sweetbreads, and those are served in many countries. And I didn't know the thymus gland was something you shouldn't eat. So, is the 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 use of the of this gland that's in all animals that are alive and those that are used in food, is this something that should have been eliminated and they made a mistake, or what is this issue? I've never even knew there was an issue about this gland and these hormones. Mm -hmm. So the thyroid hormone is a naturally occurring hormone that is secreted from the thyroid gland and circulates in the body. It's been the practice of our members to exclude the thyroid gland from the pet food and treats, um, particularly because the gland itself is where you'll have the concentration of the hormone. And so what we've been seeing are practices to exclude the, the gland itself, and that could be through a few ways, either through complete removal of the gullet, or the part of the neck where the thyroid gland exists, or um, you know, recognizing that this is a potential hazard if you do have the gullet, and taking steps to control that control that hazard. Um, and so, you know, through various ways, that thyroid was detected in these foods. Now, what I would note that I thought was interesting, also, so these are practices that have been going on through industry, whether it's removing the gullet or continuing to monitor closely which is that um, FDA stated that the hyperthyroidism in dogs is rare and is usually triggered by thyroid cancer, which, you know, is also an indication that so far industry practices um, of preventative measures have been working for the most part. But we recognize that safety isn't static. So there are ways that our members will be incorporating this feedback into their food safety plans. But, but this is a new issue, and yet... The, these glands have now, it turns out, I didn't even know, have been excluded from the making of pet food. Mm -hmm. But I guess um, in some cases, some some of the gullets slipped into the pet food while they were using the, the chicken bodies or whatever. Is this something that's kind of like a one-off, a few little, it's actually hyperthyroidism that they were concerned about, not hypothyroidism. But, you know, it, given the fact that hyper-T hyperthyroidism in cats 
who eat a lot. We wish that we they ate more canned food, to be honest, because they're, they're on way too much kitty crack. But those cats, there are now studies showing that what is known to be this benign tumor on the thyroid gland in cats, which is called hyper-T, and can be permanently cured with a radioactive treatment, and the New York Times had a huge article about it, has absolutely nothing to do with the food they're eating. But they think now not to do with just aging, and this is a natural problem, but from a lot of anti-flame uh, retardant materials in sofa cushions and draperies and carpets and cloth. And these animals are taking in a lot of it, uh, which means that all the little children, which is a separate issue about the canary in the coal mine, that are in the pajamas, which aren't allowed to be made of cotton anymore and are all supposed to be made of inflammable materials, are taking in these same chemicals. So how do they know who decided that the few gullets with thyroid gland in it that wound up in pet food have anything to do with animal health, or I mean, pet animal health? I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not totally clear on your question here. Well, I don't have any, I don't understand why this connection has been made between some thyroid gland material being found in some pet food and this mm -hmm. condition in dogs, hyperthyroidism, which, you know, mm -hmm. the, many of these things are diseases of older age in dogs like Cushing's and Addison's. And in the case of cats, hyper T comes, they think now, from the environment, but it's not from some chicken gullets in their food. So who yeah. is the person who is the so-called whistleblower, if you will, that calls attention to something that I myself mm -hmm. that spend a huge amount of time swimming around in this pet food water wasn't even aware of? Who decides who is the person who fingers, if you will, the chicken gullet slash thyroid gland slash thyroid issues in dogs as being from that cause? Yes. Okay. So this could come through internal uh, company investigations uh, or research. Um, you know, there's testing and monitoring that goes throughout the manufacturing process. So you'll see that that goes on during the manufacturing process. Or if FDA does conduct a, an inspection themselves as well in testing on food, which, which does occur, that could be the instant where something like this could rise. So what they found in these unopened cans of do, uh, apparently three dogs in a cluster, I guess three dogs were considered a cluster, that's hard to imagine, had eaten food in a can, canned dog food, and it was tested, the unopened cans, and it had active thyroid hormone. I still don't understand how that would make an animal sick because being someone who's had thyroid disease my whole life, I'm really aware of the fact that a healthy thyroid gland, it doesn't, you could, you, you, let's say you, Mary Emma, have a, have a, a, a totally healthy thyroid gland. You could take all kinds of additional thyroid pills, Synthroid or Levothyroxine, and your body would ignore them because the gland is doing what it needs to do and an excess would be ignored. I, it just seems really strange to me. I, I don't believe that ha eating some thyroid gland causes hyperthyroidism in dogs because mm -hmm. people eat sweetbreads. Is that not the thymus gland? I'm pretty sure it is. Not to get to into you know country French cooking, but I'm pretty sure that's what sweetbreads is. And I ate lots <laughs> of it in my life. Now, maybe that's why I have thyroid disease. I'm only kidding. But really, it's, it's, it's included in the peasant fare as are all organ meats for humans mm -hmm. and has been for centuries. And, and I believe that one thing that was noted in this report was for the instances of the dogs with hyperthyroidism, 
was that their symptoms ceased after switching diets uh, and control from their veterinarian as well. And so that was something that uh, is worth pointing out here as well. And I think goes back to the important issue too that we've discussed in the past, which is communicate with your veterinarian on this issue. And um, they, they're in information sharing programs with FDA as right, well, which is right. how this information can be passed along. And that is how people get to uh, the end result of saying, okay, we're going to point at this product or this practice as being one that's probably uh, at fault, if you will, or to blame, even though nothing was done, you know, purposely, nobody would purposely put thyroid gland tissue into pet food if everyone knew it wasn't a good idea. But I guess it's good because you can call out, oh my gosh, there was one run of food. It's actually pretty impressive. Three dogs, one run of one brand of food and one run, meaning one batch of the chicken meat that came from wherever. It's actually pretty impressive that they can say, okay, that's the problem. So we recall those cans and those dogs are fine and we're all going to be more careful about using chicken gullets. Is that sort of what it boils down to? I, I think you're capturing it fairly well. And the fact is that hyper hyperthyroidism, let me make sure I'm saying it right, it is rare in dogs. And, you know, the, the information released by FDA provides manufacturers with ways to um, review how they need to change their practices in the regard to fervor implement controls in this scenario. I have to say to me, it's, it's pretty, I, I still have my just own personal doubts from a logic perspective. I need to, I need to seek out that person in the FDA or the veterinarians, you know, at whatever UPenn or Cornell or someplace who were involved in, in coming up with this solution to understand, you know, what's a red herring and what is appears to be a cluster and appears to be something in common the dogs have, but there may have been other things they had in common as well. But I think it really is terrific. I mean, better safe than sorry is really what it boils down to. It may be an abundance of caution, but but how great that we have a system that's working that well. Exactly. I, I, it, it points to a, a great uh, example of what our food safety system looks like and uh, how these proactive measures that can go on will will allow for um, these recalls to occur preemptively uh, before right. you know we see any major incidences. Of course, a sick pet is one sick pet too many, but right. it's a part of the food safety system. And I have to say, I appreciate your hat of the hard-boiled detective searching for the food here. <laughs> I can't help it. I, you know, I love to be suspicious, both of the people that complain and those that they're complaining about, because sometimes mm. people jump to conclusions and they have a, a sort of a predetermined idea of what's going on here. Oh, it must be the pet food, it's toxic. You know what I mean? As opposed to, I don't know, some other thing, like they all got bitten by some hideous kind of tick or drank some dreadful water or something. But I, I love the fact that it really does help us understand how pet food industry, um, how, how PFI works and how FDA works and how they work together. And it really is on behalf of pets. And I, I, we just all, I, I just wanna reiterate what I've come to understand in the 12 years I've been doing this, which is, Pet food companies are not our enemy. They're not against people and animals, and they're not trying to make a buck on the back of your animals by doing anything un unkindly or unwell or improperly. Quite the opposite. So they are our friends, and they're helping us nourish our dogs and cats well, and everybody has a different amount of money in their pocketbook and in their piggy bank. So you have to have products on all ends of the financial spectrum and it's just good to know that everyone's being held to the same standard. So thank you so much, Mary Emma Young, and thanks to the Pet Food Institute and 
any other topics that come up, I know who to ask. All right. Thanks, Tracy. It's Thanks great so to talk much to you. Being here. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. I'll be right back after this quick word with Lucinda Williams and the Service Dog by Warren Retrievers. This show is made possible in part by Precious Cat Litter, owned by Dr. Elsie, who has his own cats-only clinic in Colorado. He's devoted his life to inventing innovative litters for the health of all members of the family, and now he has broken new ground by creating a new dry and canned food for kitties called Clean Protein. Clean Protein was inspired by the protein levels found in a cat's natural prey, and 90% of the protein in the Clean Protein kibble and cans is animal-based, not the plant-based ingredients in traditional dry cat food like grains, potato, vegetables, and fruits that are high in oxalate and lead to rapid metabolization, which actually increases your cat's hunger. The primary ingredients in Dr. Elsie's Clean Protein are the highest biological value proteins available. And the result is that your cat's appetite is satisfied longer without compromising her health. If you want to feed dry food to your cat, even as part of her diet, make the healthier choice. The proof is in the protein. I am back with Lucinda Williams from the Service Dogs by Warren Retrievers that's based in Madison, Virginia. Luckily for me, Lucinda lives over the mountains in New Hampshire, but these are dogs that are di- trained to be diabetic alert dogs. And I actually had been very eager to try and help a, a young couple, two men who adopted a baby who wound up to have diabetes at an infant age. And they were concerned, oh, my God, how is this little boy going to get through life? And I tried to help them find a diabetic alert service dog. And they're not easy to find. But now I found this wonderful organization that, that places them with kids. Lucinda, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. I, I wish that these dogs weren't needed for such a dire kind of situation. I know you're also the grandma of a little person who's got diabetes. And I know it's really, really hard for parents and grandparents of kids with type 1 diabetes. It's so, so challenging to manage in little kids and young kids. And of course, th- there's all the health problems that go with it. And until the idea of diabetic alert dogs, am I right that I don't know, you had to prick a kid how many times a day and just be hovering over them at all times between what they put in their mouth and how much exercise they did and their mental state at all times. Has this really changed the the landscape for for people in general with diabetes, but particularly with children? Well, yes. I mean, you're absolutely right in your assumptions that all of those things have to occur, especially... Um, when we relate to the couple that you're helping with their, with their child that's almost an infant. I know with my grandson, he was 18 months at diagnosis. And at that age, when they're so young, um, they can't express to you when um, a type 1 diabetic feels, actually feels their blood glucose dropping to a low level that could be dangerous or rising too high. Those, you know, those children just really can't express that. And um, so you do find yourself as a parent or a grandparent or caretaker doing the finger pokes. Um, A service dog doesn't get you around the finger pokes. In fact, sometimes you find you do them even more often because the service dog is sensing the glucose highs and lows um, so much quicker and more often. Um, But yes, a, a child with type 1 diabetes is having anywhere from a dozen to two dozen finger pokes a day to stay on top of their fluctuations. Type 1 is so very different than type 2. Um, Type 2 
you know, some people just think of diabetes just being as a whole, but there are very, very two different, very different categories. Type 1 is usually in a child, a virus has attacked a pancreas, shut it down, and the child has absolutely no ability to produce insulin on their own. Um, type 2 is something that can happen to us when we get older and maybe we don't exercise as much as we, we should or watch our diet as we should and <clears throat> medications can cause a problem to result in type 2. But type 1 is very, very different and it is a life of testing glucose swings that can be extremely dangerous and the dogs are absolutely unequivocally helping most especially children with these swings that can become so very life-threatening. Well, when I first learned about service dogs by Warren Retrievers, it was through an article here in Vermont where I live about an eight-year-old schoolboy who had type 1 diabetes that he'd had since he was quite a bit younger and going to a most Mm -hmm. charming little school where they at first had not allowed his dog to come and then you personally, it turns out, step in to help educate the school and the headmaster or the principal, whatever they call it in a little school, and his classmates about what it's like to have a service dog of this kind in the classroom to welcome the dog there to keep this little boy safe, but for other children to not view the dog as a pal to to fiddle with, to play ball with, to understand the whole concept of that dog is working. So what was that experience like? It it looked like a very happy, feel-good experience from the pictures. It was tremendous. It was a tremendous day at um, Stowe Elementary School in Vermont um, where we have our young client, Carter, taking his service dog, Nova. The school was absolutely very welcoming from from the very beginning of having the service dog there, but they had had no history whatsoever of having a service dog in the school. And they, my hats off to the school principal, their administration, they wanted to do it right. They wanted to have someone from the company come and help the children and the faculty, um, the administrators all know what a diabetic alert dog even is. I mean, a diabetic alert dog is for an invisible disability. You see people walking with a service dog and you don't even know why they have it. So um, that's for adults. Imagine young people wondering, what what is that dog doing? Um, So they wanted to do it right, and they do that through. They see every moment as they should as educators, as educational moments. And it was just a joy to go there. I did two assemblies, probably saw 600 students and teachers and administrators. Um, we talked about the service dog Nova and how he or she needs to take care of Carter every day and no petting and no feeding and where Nova would sit in the classroom and where she would sit in the, the gymnasium and even right. during assemblies. And the best part about that is that we literally have – We have almost 600 service dogs working across the country, many of them for children, and do attend school. So I, you know, had anecdotal stories to share with the students and pictures of our other service dogs as they go about their day-to-day, you know, activities in a schoolroom that I was able to share with the students to give them that visual of what they would see. And as far as I know, and I literally just checked in with the principal last week, everything is going so, so well and I know for Carter's parents, there's just a, a feeling of safety and security when they know that service dog is there to alert their little boy, you know, that his blood glucose is changing and he needs to check 
and he needs to fix it. I mean, those are, those are times when a crisis is diverted, and that's what we all want for, for these little ones with type 1. So normally you'd have to have a school nurse somehow be almost shadowing, I imagine, a diabetic child because the highs and the lows, you still have to do the finger prick to identify Absolutely. how high or how low, right? And then you take in some sugar or you slow down or something, but all that takes quite a lot of monitoring. It's almost like a spreadsheet. Oh my goodness, yes. I mean, children with type 1 diabetes who are in a public or private school setting, um, that is a very complicated procedure starting at the beginning of each year, meeting with the nurse, um, for the parents, um, knowing what the blood glucose range should be for the child because not every child is the same in their blood glucose range. Somewhat the same, but not exactly the same. Um, the finger pricks, often to Tracy, this, one of the things parents try to do is get your child as quickly as possible to understand the condition they have and to be able to self-treat. You want them to right. be able to take care of themselves. Independence is an important part, and that's where the dogs actually play yes. a huge part because they're a part of that independence team. And um, the nurses are so involved, depending on the age of the student, the blood glucose range. There's always a check before a child goes to lunch. There's a check after lunch and a correction. Wow. As you had mentioned earlier, all the carbohydrates of a person with type 1 diabetes have to be calculated. And then insulin has to be either injected directly into the child or through a pump to cover the food that they had just eaten. Because again, their body cannot make any of the necessary insulin to cover carbohydrate intake um, it can't self-regulate that in any way. So um, it is a very hand-on, hands-on experience for the nurse. But, you know, the nurses, for the most part that we hear from and when the dogs are placed, are thrilled because it's like a second set of hands for them. Yes. <laughs> in yeah. some schools with huge populations, we have nurses taking care of, you know, six, seven, ten wow. children in a building. And these these kids all need checked. They all need to be corrected again, depending on their age and their ability levels with understanding their disease, how to work their pumps or administer their, their injections. A friend it's of a mine very actually, complicated it disease. It is complicated and it has terrible ramifications. You can go into it a coma. Does. I mean, terrible ramifications for health as the person grows up and, and ages. But I, I had a friend whose, whose daughter was t- diagnosed as type 1, very young, like your, your grandchild, and was apparently the youngest person, as I understood it at the time, to be fitted with a pump. She's now graduated from college, but she was 12. And at that time, these surgically implanted pumps were considered something that a child couldn't handle, just as people in in many fields believe that service dogs can't be handled by children. So that's obviously a more open-minded attitude by service dogs by Warren, because you're placing them with children on purpose. You're not saying, well, I got to save this for when it's, you know, can drive. Oh, your your questions and observations are so point on. We have a very um, important part of our mission is to place a dog with a child as soon as possible so that that bonding can start to happen. And and also, we firmly believe that if you are catching a high or low blood glucose swing, that you're you're averting these disasters. But also, these swings. Each month, a diabetic goes to their endocrinologist, and they get what's called an A1C score. And that score is basically saying to you, how well do you manage your diabetes? 
um, are you having horrible highs, horrible lows? Right, because right. these are all things that down the road when you're older, you see people that have, unfortunately, loss of limbs or yes. blind, blindness issues, start horrible ramifications of dealing with this disease on such a long-term basis. You know, when you're diagnosed as just a baby, you have got a, a lifetime ahead of you of, you know, trying to control this. So as the dogs are keeping you in range, they are keeping that A1C number at a very, very healthy point. So the long-term ramifications of having that additional, you know, I say set of paws beside you, um, that is what for us as an organization is the most exciting about the dogs. We have some families that have had their dogs now seven years in, in service and their A1Cs are these beautiful numbers and the endocrinologists are coming back to us and saying, you know, I believe in this organism. I believe in these dogs. They, right. They're ecstatic, right. you know, because we've had A1Cs change from 14, which is way too high for a child, to 7, which is perfection, you know. So um, we're all just looking little, at all... all little bits and pieces are growing healthily and well and not being compromised by these spikes and dips. Exactly. The blood sugar. Exactly. They don't exactly. go into life when it... with more compromise. Right. I mean, because we just have to put it out there that children die from type 1 diabetes every day, too many children. And this is because they have not been able to feel usually a blood glucose go way too low and it's no longer life supporting. I mean, I know before the service dog came, my grandson had some experiences of having blood glucose of like 30, which it's just not under 60 becomes life threatening. And since the service dog, we have never had a, a, a situation like that happen again. The service dog is just absolutely adamant that you are going to do this check. It comes, it paws you, it paws my grandson. It, it is saying, look, you need to get there. And my grandson is on a pump, and he also has a Dexcom, which is a continuous blood glucose monitor. Wow. And that monitor is implanted in him, and it's saying... Um, at any given moment, I can pick it up and look on the screen and say, no okay, kidding. what what is he? But the problem with those is there it's not a perfected science yet. So that thing can be off 30, 40 points. The dog beats that monitor 20 to 40 minutes consistently. So the dog is alerting us and saying, you know, Luke is going low. We'll check, and goodness gracious, he is. But the monitor is still telling us that he's perfect. You know, the monitor's saying he's 100, that's a perfect blood glucose. The dog is alerting or checking, and Luke is 70 and dropping. So the dog has averted a disaster and beat the monitor. And this we find, not anecdotally, our families must keep logs so that we can track and make sure the dogs are accurate in their alerts, that things are working out well. We want it to work. So we're asking you, if the dog gives you an alert, put in your logbook, I got an alert. At, right. You know, three o'clock this afternoon, and I was 70, so I was low, so it was a perfect alert. We want to know that. We want to know that they're doing their job. So these dogs are basically picking up way before the human nose can notice having been oh, in the goodness. ambulance in East yes. Hampton. You knew when someone was in a diabetic emergency and you would quickly, you know, get them sugar or orange juice or something, but they had a sweet, sweet smell. One said it's almost like acetone. The dog is picking up an odor way, way before it comes off the person's breath, obviously. 
Yeah, I mean, the dogs are smelling in parts per trillion. Um, Now, clearly, the human is what we use. It's a visual, and I actually used it at Stowe, Vermont, for the kids to help them wrap their brains around what this dog is able to do. It's the nose. And so we always say throw a tablespoon of sugar in a cup of tea, and you will smell the tea get sweet. Throw a tablespoon of sugar in an Olympic-sized swimming pool, and the dog will tell you which swimming pool has the sugar in it. That's the difference of the way they can smell versus we can't. We just really can't smell. I mean, someone has to be have an incredibly high blood glucose level for you to be able to smell that sweet breath, that sweet smell. They're they're in a danger zone when you can smell it. And unfortunately, with low, that's more symptomatic and not a smell for us as humans to notice that our child is getting clammy or they're becoming weak. There and and when you're at that point, you know, Tracy, it's almost getting too late. You yes. need to rush. You know. That's right. So we want to avoid those. The dog's job is to avoid those crisis moments. You know, just don't let those happen because those are the things that not only in the short term can cause you a hospital stay and a scary situation, but in the long term can affect that A1C and and make you not as well as you could be. You know, Down you, you the could road. be a healthier person. Okay, mm-hmm. so what I'm going to have with the podcast of the show is a link to service dogs by by Warren Retrievers so that people that are interested in learning more about what the dogs can do can find out more about how to get a dog, how to cover the cost of it with their own money or fundraisers or whatever the way may be. I know a lot of, we're, we've run out of time, but I know a lot of your families do community spaghetti dinner kind of things and get the whole Sure, absolutely. We do and all of that. We love it. And it's great. And I think then the whole community is behind that child and that dog. And the dog and the kid are, are really belong to the town or the, 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 the church or the whatever it is. And, and, and that's a great feeling of, of it, sort of expanded support. I, I think that these dogs are incredible. And it's so great that you, uh, great and sad that you have personal experience of it. But I really appreciate you being here, Lucinda, and look forward to people learning more about these fantastic dogs and the work they do. Well, thank you so much, Tracy. We really appreciate your advocacy and awareness attempts. We really do. It's a pleasure. You take care. Nice talking to you. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you all for listening. Hug the dogs, kiss the cats, and get out and enjoy some nice weather while you can. I'll talk to you again next week. 